Hey folks, you own firearms? I do. Did you know that there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Meet muzzle stick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzle stick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. That could save lives. Are you one of nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection? Well, Taking an extra precaution by using muzzle sticks, big bright barrel, and chamber flags will let everyone around you know if the firearm is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some people do. And a clearly marked gun's status communicates to others around that may not have firearm handling experience and it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags do offer firearms rapid clear identification, and that could save lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owner. Head over to muzzlestick, M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K dot com to place your order. One more time, that's muzzlestick, M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K dot com. After all, we only have one life to live. Hello, America, and happy Wednesday. Oh, my gosh, what an amazing week thus far. I'm literally just trying to stay on top of all of the news, whether it's related to the Mar-a-Lago search, whether it's related to new revelations about the student loan debt. We had an amazing interview last night with Congressman Ralph Norman, making clear that members of Congress are banding together and they're going to sue President Biden. This is rare for individual members of Congress to sue their president claiming that he has usurped their power to make law when he unilaterally canceled student loan debt without a lawful appropriation or lawful declaration of power from the Congress. Those are the sort of things going on. We're in a very historic time. On any other day, that would have been the only big story. But we also have last night, the Justice Department around midnight releasing its memo, why it doesn't believe Donald Trump's request for a special master to sort through the documents from the raid is warranted. They don't want it. They said it might hurt national security. And then they chock full it up with ideas or their own allegations about what they think was wrong. The big allegation is that they believed the president's team might have been involved in suppressing or hiding or concealing some of the documents after they had already been grand jury subpoenaed. That's really interesting. And I I have to see where that leads on their their side, what their evidence is to back that up. It's one thing to say it. We know (laughs) what that happened in the Russia collusion case and everything to be able to back it up. But an interesting development there. So many big, big stories breaking around. And we've got you covered 24-7 whistleblowers. Oh, by the way, Agent Tebow, the former assistant special agent in charge of Washington Field, he's released a statement saying he resigned. He retired on his own. He is under investigation, but he doesn't. He expects to be cleared and doesn't believe he did anything wrong. It's important to give all sides of that story. We covered that this morning. You should check that out. Very important statement there. We've got an amazing show for you today, starting off with a journalist and book author who wrote one of my favorite books of the last decade, The Gray Lady Winked. Do you remember about this? So you probably talked about it on the show about 18 months ago. The Gray Lady Winked. The first real book to take on some of the long historical failures of the New York Times. The New York Times is treated like it's the ivory tower of the journalism profession, but it's had a long and tortured history of failure way before the Russia collusion failures that I've helped document. Well, Ashley Rinsberg, the journalist who wrote that book, is joining us today. He's got a fascinating piece of journalism done on Anthony Fauci. How did Anthony Fauci, a guy who was an immunologist, become in charge of infectious diseases and bioweapons? And he connects it. You're going to get a kick out of this. He connects it all the way back legitimately, factually, lawfully, smartly to Dick Cheney in the post 9-11 period in American history. You're going to want to hear that interview. Dick Cheney created Anthony Fauci's The Column that Ashley Rinsberg just wrote. It's a really fun read. We're going to have him on for a good part of the show today. We're going to learn a lot about what he's been thinking about, what he's been doing. He is a very thoughtful journalist. He writes with a neutral voice, but he comes up with a lot of great provocative ideas around the country and particularly related to media and truth and liberty, and freedom, and cancel culture. I think he's done some really super specific great work, and I'm, I'm really proud of him. We're glad to have him on today. And our second guest is Todd Gardenhire. He's a state senator from Tennessee who's taking the lead on fighting back against liberal, woke ideology creeping in 
to the financial sector in America, creating cancel culture, canceling people's ability to make financial purchases, use credit cards, unless they believe in climate change, unless they believe in whatever the prevailing theories of the NIH are. He has led an effort in the state legislature, in the state Senate. He got a law passed. He's going to tell us what state legislators are doing and why is that important tonight on Real America's Voice at 6 o'clock. We're preempting the normal program that Amanda and I have, and we're doing a show on efforts around the country to fight the ESG movement, the environment social governance movement, which is trying to inject one political side's values upon the entire country, upon all of the corporate America, upon all of the financial institutions that you and I may deal with. And we may not all agree on things. That's one of the great things about America. We have the freedom to disagree. But uh, this ESG movement wants to make a unilateral, everybody's got to follow one ideology or you're in trouble. Well, Senator Todd Gardenhire from the great state of Tennessee, state senator, is going to explain what he and his colleagues have been doing. That's going to be a fun interview. You're going to enjoy that. Two great guests back to back right after this commercial message. We'll start off with our good friend and the great author, Ashley Rinsberg, right after this. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA, and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. Hey folks, it's John Solomon here. Today, I want to shine a light on AMAC, an organization who's dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending the freedoms that made this country great and to ensure that we secure our nation's future. Plus, membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, and entertainment, and of course, special insurance rates, one of the things I like. Regardless of your age, if you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience and our quest to keep this country great. Sign up now for amac.us slash justnews. And for a limited time, you get a free gift membership for someone else who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference from AMAC. Join today at amac.us slash justnews. That's amac.us slash justnews. And extend the invitation to a friend or family member for free. What a great opportunity. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. This next guest is one of my favorites. In fact, I think wrote one of the most important books of the last 10 years about the state of the news media. The Gray Lady Winked, the book by the great journalist Ashley Rinsberg. And he joins us again today. Ashley, great to have you back on the show. Thank you, John. It's great to be back. Anthony Fauci, the gift that keeps on giving, at least in terms of as we learn more and more, we realize most of what we were told two, three years ago about the pandemic just wasn't true. But you've done a provocative, great piece of reporting. I think it, it really it ties together things that I wouldn't have thought of, but you're right on the money. How Dick Cheney created the Anthony Fauci we all know today. Tell us a little bit about what the aftermath of the 9-11 buildup of government has to do with the Anthony Fauci that we endured the last two and a half years. Yeah, it's not really something I would have expected either. And I think that kind of, there's a bit of a preface here, which is that how did we not know this until now, right? We've got this huge media, they're focused on Fauci nonstop for two weeks, two years, sorry. And it was all kind of this hagiography, just endless praise, but no one stopped to just look at the facts. And what I wrote here was a piece about, it's just history, right? It's just looking at 
where he came from, how he came up in government. And the answer to that question is that in the aftermath of 9-11, and even slightly before 9-11, when the Bush administration came to power, they really came in, especially Dick Cheney, looking to create a biodefense strategy. They started to understand that the next frontier of warfare would be partially waged with bioweapons, and Cheney was very concerned about this. Um, Bush was more concerned on the sort of natural outbreak pandemic front, but Cheney was really thinking about how to about the potential of, of enemies of the United States weaponizing um, biology, weaponizing viruses. So they started to build this huge infrastructure and fund it with billions of dollars. And part of what they did was created this vertically integrated power structure, and they placed Anthony Fauci at the very top of it. He was the NIAID director then. He is still today for a few more months. And this is kind of the thing that people have really missed about Fauci. And this is the big point, that we've all come to think of him as a great public health expert, the top public health uh, official in America. He is not that. He's definitely not that. He is, in fact, a biodefense national security official. He's the very top of that command structure. And this is something we all should have known about two or three years ago and not just today. It's just amazing. But it's why our founding fathers, I suspect, had a fear that if we built too big of a central government, these sort of self-sustaining entities would grow and grow and usurp our power, usurp our freedom, certainly usurp our tax dollars. It's so interesting to look at a decision made 20 years ago. By the way, there was reasons to be concerned about biodefense weapons, right? Because there were some al-Qaeda documents that were recovered in Pakistan that looked like they were playing with bioweapons. But from that, we give this guy, and over time, you do a really great job in your article of showing how Fauci evolved this, right? So it starts as a bioweapons, protect America post 9-11, red, white, and blue thing. And then he turns it into this massive scientific bureaucracy we spend all this money, we get to the first pandemic that we've really had, you know, it was really a pandemic. It didn't seem like any aspect of that pandemic worked the way it was supposed to. Why did we fail so bad? I think we failed because we were trying to achieve the wrong goals. And, you know, when the goal here was just kind of total control, and total control never, ever works. It definitely doesn't work in a democracy, and it doesn't even work in China. A few weeks back, I wrote another article about China's supposed zero COVID strategy. That's a total lie. There has never been zero COVID in China. COVID was was galloping through China. Of course it was. And the numbers that the the CCP puts out to the official numbers that get re-reported by the U.S. media, among others, are are false. They're lies. Um, so total control, if that's your goal, you're going to fail. If your goal, on the other hand, is saying, how do we moderate? How do we treat? How do we use some sort of blended approach that really targets where we need to target? Then you might have a better shot. And, you know, I, I take as evidence the failure of America's pandemic response. The fact that a reporter from NBC News early in the pandemic reached out to Fauci by email asking, if it's possible that America could have, at, at the end of it, 500,000 COVID-related deaths. And Fauci wrote back, that, would, that seems exceptionally high. And there were 1 million deaths in America. By Fauci's own standards, we failed miserably. We doubled what he considered to be an exceptionally high death rate. And that was under his, his watch. And again, we come back to this idea that Fauci is not a public health expert. He is an immunologist, and he was running biodefense, and that is what he's trained to do. That's what he knows how to do. It's what he's done for the last 30, 40 plus years. We had people at the CDC and other parts of government and academia who are experts in public health and who were saying, don't do this total lockdown thing. It's not going to work. It's going to make it all worse, and it's going to make everybody miserable and destroy lives needlessly, and that is indeed what happened. Yeah, there's no doubt. You had a fascinating interview you dug up in the, I guess it'll be 19 years ago. It was in the LA Times in 2003. One of the great epidemiologists of the last half century, Richard Ebright, out at Records, he said this well-intentioned response, meaning the Dick Cheney bioweapons ramp up the Anthony Fauci acceleration project, this well-intentioned response may perversely have exactly the opposite effect. In other words, 
We'd be less prepared. We could have leaks. We'd have failures. We'd have bioweapons races. It seems as we look back now, the bureaucracy actually did give us a failure instead of protecting us in success. Pretty prescient stuff that Ebright said back then, right? Yeah, and Ebright is one of the champions of restraint, of caution, of just kind of common sense values when you're talking about some of the most uh, lethal and dangerous technologies ever known to man. Would you think that a virus like the one we've just experienced, the pandemic, has killed something around 10 million people? That is many more people than a nuclear weapon would kill. So that's, you know, Ebert is saying, let's just be cautious here. Let's, it's not to say we need to drop our biodefense programs. Let's say don't do any research. Ebert has been saying all along, let's take it easy. Because, you know, what, one of the things people forget about in Eisenhower's famous uh, military-industrial speech, uh, military-industrial complex speech, is that he also warned against the scientific-industrial complex. He did. That was the second complex. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and we forget how dangerous it is because it is so powerful. And we know what happens when human beings get their hands on power. They want more. They want it to become, as we know, absolute. And that's the, out, the, the, the outcome of all this is that, you know, you, you, for every reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction. That's the same in politics. And that's what we've seen happen with this kind of very aggressive research that's been conducted, not just in America, but in China, financed by America. And that's one of the other conundrums that we're looking at. With this. What, what happened here? Why was the U.S. funding research on viruses, pan, viruses that they were trying to make to give these viruses what they call pandemic worthy? Yeah, yeah exactly. Pandemic potential. Can we create a, a pathogen with pandemic potential. And can we do that in a Chinese lab where the Chinese military is present? That to me is one of these red flags that people are saying, wait a second, why were they there? Why was the U.S. funding it? Why did we have any involvement with that whatsoever? It's one of these not just unanswered, but unasked questions. Yeah, it really is. And I think Ebright's warning in 2003 takes us to that great unanswered question, one that, you know, originally we were told was misinformation or propaganda, but now we're told is a co-equal likelihood of being the origin of COVID, which is we did gain a function research that might have resulted in a lab leak that brought this entire pandemic upon us. Go take that possibility, which the intelligence community says is very real. And Ebright's words just seem all the more prescient that he saw that this big complex might create the very weapon that it was trying to save the world from amazing stuff. I want to talk a little bit, you've done such a good job highlighting the failures of the New York Times in in one of my favorite books of the last decade. But you also, I think, have captured a little bit of how bad reporting, misinformation, disinformation has led to extraordinary cancellation of people who actually, in many cases, were right or had the right idea or whose opposition actually could have brought value to the public square, to the public debate. When you start to think about people like Dr. J. Bhattacharya or Dr. Harvey Rich at Yale, these are guys that were widely, widely respected until they dare challenge the narrative that Anthony Fauci created for this pandemic. How do we sideline that level of expertise so easily and with such impunity? And now, two and a half years later, realize what, what they were talking about probably was the right approach. The Great Barrington Declaration seems to be where the CDC has ended up. That's right. Yeah, the, those those guys um, were, you know, were as you kind of alluded to. These these were not people from the fringe. They weren't even people from just kind of the mediocre center. These are these are like the top of their field researchers from Stanford, from Harvard, from Yale, from all the places that you would think would catch the media's attention and and their uh, sort of implicit respect. But that's not what happened because they really did uh, violate this kind of omerta. They they spoke the words that were not. They were not meant to be spoken, and that was enough to have them just sidelined and for have everyone else kind of bulldoze over them. And this is something that I speak about in the introduction of The Grey Lady Wink, that what media is lacking today, the mainstream media is lacking today, is what it used to have, which is kind of a collaborative, collegial, let's let's kind of piece it to get, piece, piece the picture together um, among us all and not let's not choose a single narrative and drive that home because what ends up happening is this this group think that has become 
intensified like almost like a laser you know it goes from this broad field broad spectrum of light to this laser that can only do one thing and point in one direction can't do anything else and in this case it a lot has to do with the media's allegiance and alliance with um forces and elements in government that they take the government message part of the government of course not the whole government and certain parties of government as well and drive it home at all costs no matter what and the most dangerous outcome, of course, is, number one, we get things totally wrong when it really matters. But even, I think, more dangerously, people lose trust in the media. People look at the media and say, hold on a second, you got the entire pandemic wrong. I think I'm going to take a step back now. And we actually really need the media in our lives. We just need a healthy media, an independent media, and a free media. And that means independent from government influence, from corporate influence, from political influence, and today, I'm afraid that's just not what we have. And the American people know that. Yeah, they do. And when the media is less popular than Congress, you know you're in trouble in the media. My early mentor in journalism was the great AP reporter, Walter Mears. When I got to Washington, I was a young guy, catapulted into a news editor's job in my early 20s, which was probably way over my skis. But I asked him one day what made a great reporter when he was trying to hire someone. And he said, I would look at their sole and I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Sole, sole, sole of their shoes. If they were well-worn, I liked them. And, and what he talked about was it was so important for reporters. If someone told you something, for God's sake, run across the street and ask the other guy and see if it's true. Be curious be doubtful at all the time until you became certain. And it seems today that reporters are more glad to be first whether they're right and that getting the click is more important than getting the story right. And I think they've become aiders and betters in some of the biggest misinformation campaigns in recent American history, Hunter Biden laptop, a lot of the claims in the early pandemic. Do you think our profession is at a pause moment or are they still charging ahead with the, the very great description of the news media that you just described? I think there are, I think it's going in both directions at once. I think there are, um, you know, a, a huge cohort that is saying we're just off to the races, right? We're building our personal brands. We're getting the scoops because we kind of have this sort of, uh, you know, this backroom deal with, for, with, the, with the sources and government that we like and who like us. And, you know, that's all good. It works for them. It really works to be inside of the machine. And um, they're just going to continue down that path. Then I think there's kind of this breakaway zone in journalism, where you've got people who are willing to take, um, to take that leap into doing something independently. And that's across the political spectrum. We've got people doing that from the left in the center on the right, but they are really saying, we've had enough. We've had enough of the BS. We've had enough of carrying water for, uh, for interests that have nothing to do with our audience or us. So I think we are heading in two separate directions at once. And, I, you know, fundamentally, that's a good thing because at least there's now a choice for people to say, all right, I'm going. I, I prefer to just kind of take this lean back approach and whatever NBABC, CBS gives me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to accept it. And then the other people who say, I don't want to do that. I want to lean into this. And I want to find out for myself. And I want to corroborate the way I can do that and look at the, the range of sources that I'm able to consume. Um, and I think that having that choice is a very good thing. Yeah, no, there's no doubt competition has always been the best free market solution to any crisis that we've had in America. We have a crisis in the media now. It's really remarkable. When you look out now at, I guess, about 18 months now since your book came out, what have you seen in the evolution of the media on the most recent stories? You've got the Trump raid where there's a lot of hysteria, and then every couple of days it seems like there's a backsliding of the storyline there. We've had the continued hysteria, then backsliding on the pandemic the Hunter Biden story becomes all the more painfully real that the FBI, the social media companies and the reporters actually pulled a fast one on the American public on an issue that could have mattered to voters before they voted. Do you see the gray lady winking, still winking? Maybe is she crying now? Is she gone beyond winking to crying? <laughs> um, I think it's, I think it's probably more of the same. I mean, you know, we'll see when the new executive editor kind of settles in at the New York times and maybe there'll be a change there. I do think with CNN's recent shakeup, um, a new CEO and some pretty high profile firings, including Brian Stelter recently in canceling a show of reliable sources, because he was really this sort of uh, warrior, this political warrior talking about media and very polarizing. And I think, you know, CNN, CNN, at least for one, it might start 
might be clocking onto the fact that people don't really like that. They maybe during the Trump era, when everything was so charged politically, the atmosphere was so charged, you had to sort of go down one of those paths, or at least it was too lucrative to resist it. I think today news organizations are starting to understand that um, they're going to have to come back towards the center and to talk to people just about about the news and about the facts and sort of do that hard work, uh, the gritty work that's not going to make these like beautiful, polished, personal brands that journalists love where they've got like, you know, a zillion Twitter followers and book deals left and right and all that stuff. But something that's much closer to what you were describing, which is that, that, that uh, shoe leather journalism that we used to appreciate, that, that kind of blue collar approach to like, let's just go and report the stories and keep our mouths shut. I think that's what people want today. And I think some news organizations are starting to cl- get clued into that fact CNN seems to be we'll see we'll see how it actually pans out the New York Times I don't think that's where the New York Times is headed I think the Times is, has um, really sort of leveraged itself into taking a political stance on the issues as it always has really I mean that's what I show in the book but you know it, it, there is a splintering I think in the media I think I think different organizations are going different directions you have an article out about Taylor Loren somebody I worked with when I was at the hill and I've seen her path evolve New York Times Washington Post but I think there's a larger theme that the Taylor Loren story and other stories like it bring forth and I'll just some of the blocking and tackling of journalism seems to have been forgotten or abandoned things like the New York Times has written two or three stories about me that were critical recently their integrity rules are adamant. You must go get fair comment. I never was approached once for any of those stories. And if they had, they would have realized part of what they reported was wrong. The Washington Post has really clear rules. You don't express political opinions in the public square that can call into question your neutrality and your objectivity as a journalist. And yet you go on Twitter every day and everyone I see on the Washington Post has a really perverse opinion about something, usually something that they're covering. Have we lost or has this generation lost a little bit of just the blocking and tackling basics that you and I were learning when we went to school? I I, I think it's, um, it's like a mixed bag. I think there's a lot of journalists out there in the in newsrooms who are, are still doing that stuff and they live and die by it. And they it's really important to them to get the story right. A lot of you, I, I hear all the time about journalists who have stories killed because, like, it just didn't pass the bar. Like, it was a good story, but it didn't it just didn't meet the standard. That's still out there. But what we have is, is as it's so often the case in life, that is a great thing. That's incredibly important. But you know what we have is kind of like the the squeaky wheels that are are loud voices. Taylor is loud. She whatever you want to say about her. She gets attention. She she sucks the energy out of the out of the the social media room, and uh, we get she gets the focus. And you know she is one of these reporters who is doing that kind of stuff. You know she had that recent thing with the post where she went out doing the story about um, YouTube video creators who were doing stuff about the Depp Amber Heard trial, and she claimed that she had reached out to two of the creators, and both of them came back and said we never heard from this person ever. And then she kind of rewired her narrative saying, oh, well, I I reached out to them after the story went live. And first of all, that wasn't true. And second of all, that you think to yourself, well, how would that change anything? If you reach out after the story goes live, you didn't really reach out. And she's still there. That's the the, the head-scratching moment where you think, number one, she's got a long track record of this stuff. And you think, how did the post of all organizations hire her? And number two, how did they keep her after this, after there was another incident with Matt Drudge, with the Drudge Report? I mean, she made a false claim. Yeah, it was one of these bizarre things. She made a false claim saying she was being harassed by one of their editors, and Drudge had to personally, Drudge is a bit reclusive, as we all know, he doesn't, doesn't really come out uh, of the pub, into the public eye much, and, and contacted her directly saying, nobody here has ever reached out to you, period. And then she she kind of backpedaled in this uh, LOL fas- fashion saying, oh, I would never think that Drudge, someone from Drudge Report could harm me, like this contemptuous thing. So a-, a lot of these weird things and one off, you think, OK, maybe something got wire got wires got crossed. But when it's again and again and again, you think there's a problem. And the fact that no one's really doing anything about, about it, you think, OK, there's something seriously amiss here. And I think that this is where where the, the, the standards that were normally um, that we normally expect get get bent, get get broken, or just get completely ignored. 
No, I think that's exactly the dynamic that people are most worried about right now. When you see this, I remember when I first went to school, the rule was don't be the story, cover the story, right? And I think there's more and more journalists that seem to inject themselves or insist that they are the story. And I think much in the way that Anthony Fauci, taking us back to the top of this conversation, insisted he was the science instead of following the scientific process. Do you think in these next few years, the exhaustion of America with all the letdowns that the center of this country that is pulling a lot of these institutions that have lost trust, science, the news media, politics, social media, do you think that the gravity of the marketplace will create some corrections on their own? I do think so. Yeah. I think there's a point where, you know, during the Trump years, the Trump presidency, there was just so much um, there's so much energy and there was so much, so many page views and impressions and advertising dollars that kind of everything, it was, it was a free for all. Like you just, you could do whatever you want and the louder and crazier you did it. Intoxication. Yeah, exactly. People are just kind of like these news organizations, like staggering around, like grabbing what they could. And I think now where we're kind of back to this, this more sober period where you're going to have to be cautious. You're going to have to be careful. You're going to hang on to every reader and subscriber and value them equally, and not just the 3% that is really polarizing your coverage because you're trying to cater to them, but the, that broad middle. And I, I think, you know, the middle is really, is the important place to be. Like, you want to talk to most people. You want to talk to normal people, ordinary people, not, and, and I think even geographically we see that, where we've been talking so much to the coasts, the West Coast and the East Coast, and we, you know, the country forgets about that huge flyover country they used to call it <laughs> exactly and, and that that term just shows like that that sort of contempt but that's i think we need to really think about the middle and think about um people who are, are in fact able to have a conversation with their, their political other there's a lot of those people out there, people out there but they are not necessarily the people on twitter people who are listening to this to understand why your book was such a success why your journalism is so important it's such an honor to have you on the show i can't wait to get you back on soon Great article. Folks, if you haven't seen this, it's on the website, unheard.com. How Dick Cheney created Anthony Fauci, a spot-on analysis of how we got at the pandemic bureaucracy that we were so let down by in the last two and a half years. Ashley's done great work, whether it's the New York Times, Anthony Fauci, can't wait to see his next piece. He's doing great work every day. Thanks for joining us, my friend. Thanks, John. Thank you so much. All right, folks, we'll take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages. Folks, Field of Greens is the healthiest thing I do every day, and I want you on this journey with me. Why? It's literally one scoop a day. It tastes great. I love the fruit flavors particularly, and it's completely improved my life and my health. This is nutrition the way nature intended. When I began taking a hard look at why I wasn't feeling good and why I felt unhealthy, why I was gaining weight, why I was losing energy, it wasn't just because I had hit my 50s. No, it was because I wasn't getting the right amount of fruit and vegetables in my diet. And listen, it's, I'm just too busy to go to the store, clean up the vegetables, cook a, a vegetable dinners, and make sure I hit the fruit. A field of greens stepped in. One scoop of powder in my drink or on my eggs in the morning, and boom, I was off and feeling better. And suddenly, I was losing weight. I was sleeping better. My metabolism went up. My blood sugar went down. My cholesterol went down. And my weight went down. And my doctor said, hey, whatever you're doing, keep it doing. You know what that is? It's Field of Greens. That's what I've been doing. Field of Greens is radically different. Each organic fruit and vegetable was medically chosen to support heart and vital organ health. I trust Field of Greens to keep me healthy. I promise you, you're going to love this product. But if for any reason you don't, they'll give you your 100% money back guarantee. Now, you're going to get 15% off your first order plus free rush shipping because of the incredible partnership we have here at Just the News with Brick. House Nutrition, and of course, Field of Greens. All you got to do to take advantage of this offer, visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Don't wait. Go to fieldofgreens.com today. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS for 15% off. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out. Higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So 
you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. Later this week on Wednesday, I've got a TV special on Real America's Voice. It'll be in the six o'clock Eastern time hall where I normally do the Just the News, Not Noise show. We're going to dive into all of the efforts to fight the ESG movement, the environment, social governance movement, which in many cases are forcing Americans to be involved with investment funds that may not support or align with their values, like being able to have energy independence in America. Well, my next guest is taking the lead on this in the great state of Tennessee, one of my favorite places to visit. He is a state senator. He's been working on legislation there to take away the right of financial institutions to make investments or to get the business of Tennessee if, in fact, they're pursuing this radical agenda. He is State Senator Todd Gardenhire. Senator, great to have you on today. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great honor. You know, a lot of people forget this, but Tennessee is a big energy state. I think about 1.6, nearly 2% of all U.S. energy jobs are in your great state. You have a lot of concern about this ESG movement, don't you? Yes, I do. And uh, from, from several different directions. Uh, but first of all, what we did in Tennessee, uh, we, we the current law that I helped draft, along with the state treasurer, uh, authorized the state treasurer and the governor and the comp- and the commissioner of finance administration to designate a state depository bank. And by the way, last week we did that. I'm have to be I happen to be chairman of the fiscal review committee, which is a joint committee of the House and the Senate, and. Uh, we actually signed a contract, a five-year contract, with a bank in Tennessee. And the main thing that we ask is, do you currently have a policy where you can't lend money because of somebody in the fossil fuel industry? And, of course, the answer was, no, we don't have that policy. So we awarded them, over a five-year period, a little over $3 million contract to manage our uh, cash management for the, for the banking system that, that, uh, that we have at the state of Tennessee. Uh, so we've, we've, we got a lot of flack. Uh, the first thing that happened was the lobbyist bank banking lobbyists for the big banks just came working over the legislature. Like you've never seen them work before. <laughs> oh yeah. They, they had a lot to protect, right? <laughs> well, they do. And you know, it's, it's funny, your, your community banks and your regional banks, weren't concerned about this. When I say concerned, they weren't concerned about what we were doing. It's the major, the big uh, Wall Street banks. And keep in mind, I used to work for one of them. For, for 40 years, I worked for a major Wall Street bank before I retired. So uh, they were really up in arms. You know, this is not fair. You're, you're punishing us. And I said, no, you've got it backwards. I said, you're punishing our businesses. We have a huge coal and gas uh, industry here in Tennessee. And uh, we want to protect those jobs. and We want to protect what's going on. And we do it in a reasonable, responsible way when we look at the environment. So they came down hard. Uh, the, the vote in the Senate was 25 to 5. Uh, and, and it went through the committee. I think it was uh, 7 to 2. Uh, the House passed it of the same margin. We have a supermajority in Tennessee, so it was strictly on a, uh, a partisan vote. Of course, the Democrats had to vote for anything that had to do with uh, uh, the ESG and the Biden administration. We understood that. They weren't, uh, there was no hard feelings. They, they knew where I was coming from, and, and we went, went from there. So I want to ask a little bit about this. It's a rather interesting moment in American history where companies and banks, rather than worry about their return to shareholders, focus on their need to get the right products and the right services to their customer base, rather than focus on the essentials of their businesses, they're all involved in trying to impose one side's political agenda over the other. 
When did banks and companies decide that politics was better than their core business? You know, I don't know, but uh, back up to the 80s and and then early 2000s, I was fortunate enough to back then be on the Department of Labor's ERISA Advisory Council. I've been on it twice, been chairman uh, for one year. And then Secretary Chow uh, asked President Bush to appoint me to the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation Advisory Council. Right. And one of the things we saw is a lot of outside pressure being put on pension funds to be politically correct. And we kept saying, guys, you've got a fiduciary responsibility to look out for the participants of that plan and get the best return that a reasonable person would make, or prudent person would make, not uh, have social investing. Now, let me stop a minute. I, I had a large client that was a religious institution, and they knew they were giving up uh, return when they said, we want no alcohol stocks, we don't want any Playboy-type stocks, we don't want tobacco stocks, we don't want abortion stocks in our portfolio. And you know, they knew they were that, but that was what they truly believed. But that wasn't uh, that what didn't apply to everybody. That was their own little pension fund. Uh, this is different. This is, affects everybody in the state of Tennessee that is remotely associated with anything in the energy uh, business. It's amazing the sweep of it, and it could have really a profound effect on the economy. We're trying to be, you know, we were energy independent. Now we had that taken away in the first few years of the Biden presidency. These investment funds, these investment banks that have a lot of sway, they literally can impose strategies onto companies that would be contrary to their interests. For instance, I think I just saw the other day Ford's going to lay off a whole bunch of workers so they can focus more on electric vehicles. We don't even have the electric grid for electric vehicles yet, but the pressure that these investment funds can have on companies to take actions that aren't aligned with their corporate strategy, that's kind of scary, right? It's sort of a bullying tactic. It can send companies off in the wrong direction, can't they? Well, it really is. About three years ago or so, I sponsored a bill at the request of a major Wall Street institution to uh, change the way that trust accounts could be handled in Tennessee. And the, 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 the hook was, if you change this law, we'll relocate our trust business to, to Nashville. And I said, okay. So I sponsored the bill. We sure. passed it. And it allowed them to come and, and uh, uh, hire a bunch of people. I mean, they hired a lot of people, professional, high-paying jobs. And the minute they hit the ground, they started trying to tell us what we could do and not do on different social issues. And so they came this year to me. And they're through their lobbyists and, and basically said, you know, we, we don't like what you're doing. And we, we fear that you're going to keep us from voting by proxy uh, stocks and stuff in our retirement plans. And we don't think that's fair. And I said, well, that's too bad. I said, uh, <laughs> you always move back to New York. I said, that's right. We are a uh, we have no income tax in Tennessee. New York has the highest, I think, maybe California. I said, we have a fully funded pension plan. That's amazing. Things, and that's not important. Then move back. Yep, it's amazing the arrogance that they have and also the lack of common sense. A lot of Americans will look at this and say, I don't get this. Why are you doing this? We're not even ready for the future that you're trying to impose on us because we haven't done the basics yet. And, and, and thank heavens for people like the, the Heritage Foundation and other institutions that finally say, okay, we've got to push back on these guys and do it in a responsible way. Yeah, that's exactly right. And now we're beginning to see that sort of coordinated strategy starting to take effect. Florida's done some stuff. Texas has done some stuff. A lot of people point to what the work you've done in Tennessee and say, this is a model for other states. Tell us specifically how the legislation works. How does it work in the day-to-day operations of the state government? What's its long-term consequence? Well, the law will will, will allow. Now, there's, there's an out clause. We put an out clause in it. And it provides an exemption in case any of the services that we needed can't be met by any of the vendors that are that are uh, bidding on the service. And in that case, uh, the the treasurer, state treasurer, or and the comptroller and the commissioner of finance can get together and uh, make some arrangements. But it can only be under certain conditions. So we've 
we put a layout clause in there in case the, the federal government puts pressure in the Federal Reserve, puts a lot of pressure on banks to toe the line. We, we don't want the state to be hurt, but we, we will stand our ground. Yeah, it's really remarkable. And so if a bank is involved in the ESG movement, if a company is involved in the ESG movement and they're shunning fossil fuels or energy sources, they can't compete for business in the state of Tennessee. Is that correct? No, they can't. Uh, they can't compete for, for state business. Now, if they want to get other, others, that's fine. But, you know, we've got the TVA with, I think, we're some of the largest nuclear footprint in, in the country. Uh, a lot of coal-fired furnaces and, and it's it's all clean i i served for four or five years on the air pollution control board here in chattanooga and you might not remember this but time magazine uh, uh named us the dirtiest city in america back in the 70s and 80s and i was appointed to that on that board and we we cleaned up in a responsible way and the industry has chipped in to clean up but it put us at a terrible competitive disadvantage to our neighbors but we did it Amazing. That history gets forgotten in this conversation, but these were major progress that was made in the state over many decades. What has the reaction been among everyday Tennessee voters? I assume they have to feel good that there's a solution in place now, right? Well, the ones that are really into it, and there's very few really into it and understand what we did, we get a thumbs up. This was, you know, great. Thank you for sticking it to them. Uh, they were tired of the federal government and the New York Wall Street banks telling us what to do down here in Tennessee. So the reaction has been very positive. I don't think I've had anybody say anything negative about it, except the lobbyists for the banking industry. <laughs> they haven't liked it, as you described. At this point, now they're seeing it implemented. Have you seen any more counteroffensives by the finance industry to, again, try to undercut this law? Or at this point, do they realize that this is inaction and they're going to have to live with it? Well, two, two things. One, the last part, they know they got to live with it. Second, they, they've sent their munchkins out to different members on the commi right committees right. to see if there's, we need to tweak this just a little bit. We need uh, to change uh, it just a little bit. And once once any industry starts that, then they, they, they get a foothold and they start watering it down. But they can't make a frontal assault on it right now, but they can try to chip away at it piece at a time. That's what lobbyists are good at. Just take a little piece here and there until they get it the way they want it. Well, Senator, it's such an honor to have you on the show. It's such an honor to watch what Tennessee's been doing. A lot of people point to it as the model for what many more states can do in the near future. I think you've blazed the path for other states to follow. It's a real honor to be able to have this conversation with you today. Well, thank you. I appreciate appreciate the opportunity and appreciate the work that y'all do in bringing this issue out. Yeah, it's an important one. And I think we're just getting people uh, educated for the first time. So it's really, really great. Sir, we'll, we'll be back in touch and be following this throughout the year. Thank you. Appreciate it. You as well, sir. Thank you now. All right, folks, we'll take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. So thankful that you could join us today. Thank you to two great guests, two great discussions. So much to think about, about the news media, about the ESG movement. I'm so grateful that all of them were able to tackle all that in one really robust conversation today. All right, before we go, I always want to remind you of the great products, the great services, the great offers you get as being a member of the Justin News family for listening to John Solomon Reports. My good friends at the Wine Enthusiasts, you know, we're at the end of summer. You probably got a great bottle of wine saved up for the Labor Day weekend or for the early fall when the leaves start turning and you're sitting on your back deck with your neighbors or 
maybe uh, on a little family vacation out into looking at the colors of the leaves as they turn. Well, you know, I've learned this the hard way, and I think we all probably have had this at one time or another. You leave a bottle on the counter in the sunlight, in the summer heat, and it gets spoiled, and that great moment becomes a sad moment. Well, don't let that happen to you. My good friends at Wine Enthusiasts are the experts in wine storage and in all things wine, and they have the solution for every type of wine drinker, for every type of wine collector, whether you have six bottles or 600 bottles, and they have consultants that get on the phone and help you work through whatever issue it is you're trying to solve. They are the premier destination for anyone who lives wine lifestyle. Wine lifestyle is fun. My wife and I love it. So many of our friends do. Well, Wine Enthusiast has an incredible selection of unique wine accessories, glassware, furniture, wine storage, gifts, and so much more. And if you go visit their website, wineenthusiast.com, right now and you use my name, John, J-O-H-M, you're going to get a special discount. In fact, an easier way to do it is to just text my name, J-O-H-N, to 511-511. Send John to 511-511 on your text messages. And from now until Labor Day, which is only a few days away, so you better hurry, you'll get an extraordinary set of savings during the Wine Enthusiast Labor Day sale. You're going to save up to 50% on some of their products particularly wine cellars and furniture. You'd be crazy not to take advantage of this. Start the fall on the right foot, end the summer, making sure you don't have any more spoiled bottles of wine or you don't ruin that moment when your friends are coming over, you pop the cork, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, big mistake. Now, all you got to do to get started to take advantage of that up to 50% off savings is to text the word John, my name, J-O-H-N, to 511-511 today. You'll be able to see for yourself all the savings that are available to you. Uh, Very special thanks to my good friends at Wine Enthusiast for all they do to support the wine lifestyle and for all they do to support Just the News and this, the John Solomon Reports podcast. All right, folks, that wraps things up for the day. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports. Lots of news breaking up. Could have some exclusive stories tomorrow. We'll try to break them on the show first. You'll get them first before anyone else. Until then, God bless you. God bless this extraordinary country, the United States, as he always has. Yep, you've been listening to John Solomon Reports, the podcast from justthenews.com. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it, with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friend, who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group. Text Just News to 989898 right now. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.